Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Mara Eliason is NPR's national politics correspondent. The Seattle chapter of the Association for Women in Communications invited her to Town Hall Seattle recently to share her views on political trends in this election cycle. Lyason then joined a panel of local experts to discuss the challenges news organizations and journalists face in a shifting media landscape. In her opening remarks, Lyason addresses political polarization, the mood of the electorate, the Democrats' search for a candidate they can love, and whether or not the Republicans are falling apart. Democrats want to fall in love. They want a charismatic candidate. They want a JFK. They want a Bill Clinton. They want a Barack Obama. This year, they're not exactly falling in love with Hillary Clinton. They're more or less falling in line behind her. And the Republicans are falling apart. The panel and the town hall audience take it from there with a wide-ranging discussion of what's happening locally and nationally. The panel includes Seattle Times editor Kathy Best, KUOW president and general manager Karen Mathis, GeekWire co-founder John Cook, and Providence Health Services and Swedish Hospital executive Dan Dixon. This event took place at Town Hall Seattle on March 31st. Thanks to Anna Sophia Knauf for our recording. Here, AWC's Lori Hennessy introduces Mara Lyason. A little bit about Mara. She focuses on the White House and Congress. She's the national political correspondent for NPR. During her tenure, she's covered six presidential elections in 92, 96, 2000, 2004, 8, and 12. Before that, she was NPR's White House correspondent for all eight years of the Clinton administration. She's won the White House Correspondents Association's Merriman Smith Award for daily news coverage in 94, 95, and 97. And from 89 to 92, she was on the Hill as the congressional correspondent, which is when I met her. She's going to talk first about this year's election, and you may have heard a thing or two about that. And for those of you who were here for our reception earlier, I'm sure you agree that she just has a great, wicked, honest sense of what's going on right now. So let's bring her out. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lori. I love Lori, and it was so nice to hear from her, and she wrote me an email that says, a blast from your past, and that was the beginning of this. So here we are, and as Lori said, I'm going to be talking about politics, which, as you all know, comes from the Greek word polis, which means community, and ticks, which means blood-sucking insects. (laughs) And... The blood-sucking insects have confounded everyone's expectations and predictions this year. Nothing has worked out according to conventional wisdom in this election. So my advice to you is to just forget everything you thought you knew about presidential elections. And pretty soon you will hear from our distinguished panel of journalists, or as Donald Trump would call us, the disgusting people. Um, But first, I'm going to give you a little overview of this extraordinary election, otherwise known as the Donald Trump show. Um, And for a while, the Republican race was giving the gutter a bad name. But for the moment, we seem to have moved beyond the back-and-forth insults of the candidates' wives. And in just the last 24 hours, we have heard from the Republican front-runner 
who said before he walked it back that women who have abortion should face criminal punishment. That was just after he also said that the Geneva Conventions were a problem and that Japan and South Korea should get nuclear weapons to protect themselves. Previously, he had threatened riots at the Republican Convention if he wasn't the nominee. He justified his campaign manager's alleged assault of a female reporter. He offered to pay the legal fees of supporters of his who might um, uh, rough up a protester and also said that he wanted to punch a protester in the face. So, and that's, I'm just scratching the surface. So it's no surprise that in a recent New York Times poll, 60% of Republican primary voters said that they thought that their party's primary election was a source of embarrassment. So um, not only do we, have we never seen a candidate like Donald Trump before, who his own Republican opponents call an authoritarian demagogue, but we might also be witnessing something that no one in historic memory has seen, which is not just a contested convention, which hasn't happened since 1948 when Dewey didn't get the nomination on the first ballot, but we might be witnessing the crack up of a major American political party, or at least the utter transformation of the Republican Party. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, On the Democratic side, and we can't forget about them, even though Donald Trump tends to suck all the oxygen in the room and in the media, but on the Democratic side, we have a much more traditional uh, contest. We have an anti-establishment left candidate running against a center-left candidate, and the Democratic Party is more or less unified, although that statement in and of itself is a huge break with tradition. Um, What we thought we knew about how the two parties chose nominees for president is that Republicans tend to fall in line. They like to pick the guy whose turn it is, who came in second last time. Democrats want to fall in love. They want a charismatic candidate. They want a JFK. They want a Bill Clinton. They want a Barack Obama. This year, they're not exactly falling in love with Hillary Clinton. They're more or less falling in line behind her. And the Republicans are falling apart. So I want to talk a little bit about the mood of the electorate, which is really important. Uh, It's the most important factor in any election. Uh, Donald Trump didn't just appear out of nowhere. He did a mind meld with a big chunk of the Republican primary electorate, particularly non-college educated voters. He said famously, I love the poorly educated. Um, And this year, voters are angry and anxious They tell pollsters they feel vulnerable, out of control. Latest Wall Street Journal poll, only 16% of voters said they had any confidence at all in the federal government. Other institutions, including the news media, fare even worse. So who are they angry at? Well, Republican voters are angry at politicians. They're angry at the media. They're particularly angry at President Obama. They are really angry at their own leadership in Washington. Every exit poll, after every primary, Large numbers of Republicans have felt, said that they felt betrayed by their own party. They've been told by their leaders that if they just sent anti-establishment people to Washington who had no political experience and they got control of both houses of Congress, they could stop Obama in his tracks. But they haven't been able to undo the Obama agenda. They're angry at immigrants. They're angry at people who they feel are freeloading on the system. They're angry at Wall Street. On the Democratic side, slightly different version of the same thing. 
Democrats are angry at Wall Street also, at Bernie Sanders billionaires, at an economic system that seems rigged against ordinary people. So there are two slightly different flavors of this mood, but overall voters are very frustrated and fearful, and they have some really good reasons to feel that way. We've had stagnating middle-class incomes for a generation. Median household income in 2014 was $4,000 below what it was at the end of the Clinton administration. We've had 10 years of under 3% growth. Um, we have low unemployment now, but wages and household incomes aren't going up. And you have what I consider to be the most important factor in American politics today, which is populism, tremendous reaction against trade agreements, well, against immigrants and trade on the Republican side and against trade on the Democratic side. And here I know we're in a, in a state that really understands free trade probably better than, than anywhere else. But trade has been summed up by saying, trade agreements at least, everyone gets a discount some people lose their jobs. Now, that's a, that's a very tough sell when you have low growth and when Washington has decided not to provide trade adjustment assistance or, or assistance or some kind of a cushion for people who do lose their jobs because of trade agreements. Um, second reason for voters' anger and anxiety is terrorism, which has come to our own shores, and voters look abroad, they think the world is on fire, and they see the world's only superpower seemingly powerless to do anything about it except for get involved in endless feudal wars. Third reason for the mood of the electorate is changing demographics. We've now had the first majority-minority birth cohort, and I think we've had the first majority-minority kindergarten class. So there's no turning back. And for a lot of white working class men, they feel not only their jobs have let gone, but their place in society is threatened. And uh, there's a lot of feeling, particularly among Trump voters, that elites look down on them. That's what political correctness means when you talk to people who are supporting Donald Trump, that they feel the elites think they're a bunch of boobs. And they are looked down on, um, and not for good reason not for good reason. Donald Trump, part of his message is we will never be taken advantage of again. So he really speaks to that. So when all those things get wrapped together, and Donald Trump is really good at, at kind of mixing them into a big stew, they are a recipe for political volatility. And since 2000, every election except for 2012 has been a change election, meaning that one House of Congress or both or the White House has changed party control. So voters keep on voting for change, and they never seem to get the change they want. And there's a fourth reason for voters being really angry um, at the establishment and at politics in general, political gridlock in Washington. We have all these huge problems, and the two parties in Washington can't seem to get together to try to fix them. Why can't we get anything done? Why can't we do something about our crumbling infrastructure, our education system, our tax system, you know, do some simple common sense reforms that might boost productivity and growth. You know, I covered Bill Clinton, as Lori said, for all eight years of his administration, and he used to say that being president was like being the superintendent of a very large cemetery. There were a lot of people underneath him, but no one was listening. <laughs> and that is because, one of the reasons is because polarization, which is also an incredibly important dynamic in American politics, is really baked into the cake. 
I think that political leadership and political will can overcome it, but polarization is really locked in. Just to give you an example, based on their voting records, there is currently not a single Democrat in the United States Senate with a more conservative voting record than a single Republican senator. Now, you might think, well, of course not. But actually, there used to be many liberal moderate Republicans and moderate to conservative Democrats, and the overlap between them is what created the center of the American political spectrum, and that's where compromises got made and deals were done, and now that center is gone. There's basically a black abyss between the two parties, and Democrats and Republicans in Washington live in pretty much... operate according to completely different political calculus. And it's not just elected officials, it's voters too. Because even though more people call themselves independents and don't want to say that they're a Democrat or a Republican, there's less and less ticket-splitting voting. In other words, people tend now to vote up and down the ballot for the same party. Um, Now, part of polarization comes from gerrymandering, the way that districts are drawn. Uh, to increase the chances of incumbents to win. Um, Just to give you an example, in 2012, if you took the national vote for the House of Representatives, in other words, all all the Republican candidates for the House of Representatives combined and all the Democratic candidates for the House... The Democratic candidates altogether got 1.4 million more votes than all the Republican candidates. But the Republicans kept their 34-seat majority in the House. So that shows you what carefully drawn districts will do. And, but it's not just the drawing of district lines. It's also how the population has sorted itself out. In 2012, Barack Obama got... or more of the vote in 27 congressional districts. Now, how many congressional districts do you think Mitt Romney got 80% or more of the vote in? One. I'm assuming it was Utah. Um, So that shows you that the population has sorted itself out. In particular, Democrats are clumped together in urban areas. You know, you have Houston and Salt Lake City had openly gay female mayors totally red states, Texas and Utah, but in Houston and Salt Lake, there are big concentrations of Democrats. So Republicans and Democratic voters increasingly live in separate political universes. People tend to live near people who think like them. They listen to media that agrees with them. We'll talk about this a little more, but the media is polarized. Fox and MSNBC don't even cover the same natural disasters. Um, A a recent Pew poll, this is my favorite polarization factoid, Um, 49% of Republicans and 33% of Democrats said they would be very unhappy if a child of theirs married someone from the opposite party. (laughs) So that raises some really big questions for the media, who you're going to hear from in a minute. So our distinguished panel will grapple with some of these, and I will just throw some of them out now. So how do you cover an election when people are so polarized? When voters don't just have different opinions, they actually have different facts. Um, Stan Greenberg, who's a Democratic pollster, did a recent poll of Trump voters, and he, and he asked them the question. Um, he, he found that big majorities of Trump voters, when they were read the statement that illegal immigration from Mexico has been zero or less since 2008, which is a fact, They were asked, is that true or is that something just made up by the liberal media? Huge majority said just made up by the liberal media. Um, Same thing with the statement, human activity is a significant factor in climate change. Trump voters, nope, don't believe it. 
So we hear a lot about low information voters. No, these people are not low information voters. They have a lot of information. Not all of it is correct. Okay, so that doesn't mean that Trump voters' grievances or their economic predicament should be dismissed. Absolutely not. Um, but it, it, you can understand why they would look for explanations and look at trade deals and immigrants as, as the reason. Um, there are other challenges for the media in the era of Trump. Um, he is the first truly viral candidate. He tweets up a storm. He puts out Instagram videos. He doesn't have position papers or, or pollsters or advisors. As a matter of fact, when he was asked before he li- put out the list of five foreign policy advisors that nobody had ever heard of, he was asked who his best advisor was on foreign policy, and he said, myself. Um, I, 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 I consult with myself. I have a good brain, and I say a lot of things. Um, so how do you cover somebody like that? Um, he, um, the New York Times, I think, tried to fact-check everything he said in a 48-hour period, and it was like they couldn't keep up with it. You know, the, there's, it's too much. He said that one of the protesters at his rallies was with ISIS. How does he know that? He read it on the Internet. Um, so, and also just the sheer amount of free media, what used to be called earned media, coverage that he gets. One estimate was that he gets $1.9 billion more of free coverage than any other candidate. Um, you know, the classic example is uh, his speech, I think it was Super Tuesday, where he gave a 45-minute press conference, mostly it was a speech, where he had the pile of Trump steaks and Trump wine and Trump water next to him. Went on and on, the, net, the cable networks covered it live. Hillary Clinton also gave a speech during that time, and they never cut away to her. So, um, <clears throat> you know, he's also been able to get the networks, because he is so good for ratings, Um, to give up on the rule they used to have is that if you wanted to be interviewed on a Sunday talk show or a news show, you had to show up and be on the set, but Donald Trump can call in. So he can be on five shows in in an hour. Um, Fox is the only network that has not relaxed its rule about in-person interviews. So the other question for the media is, how do you be even-handed? When he says he wants to punch a protester in the face, do you have a pro-punching-in-the-face commentator and an anti-punching-in-the-face commentator, and they discuss it? I mean, are there some norms and values and customs and kind of rules of civil society that we say are not relative? So journalists are supposed to report on what a candidate says, what it means, is it consistent with what he said in the past, so that voters can decide for themselves if that person has the values and the plans and the temperament to be president. Sigh, how quaint. (laughs) Or, in the era of Donald Trump, how futile. Um, So, as I said, Donald Trump didn't just come out of nowhere. He really is the id of the GOP. He has completely flummoxed what you might call the superego of the GOP, the Republican establishment, who went from complete denial in the early days of Trump. They felt if they just took two aspirin and lay down when they got up, he would be gone. That didn't happen. Now they're in a kind of full-on freak-out about that he, if he's the nominee, he will destroy the party in the process. Um, but there have, there, they went from an effort to actually defeat him, spent millions of dollars in advertising against him. Now the strategy is to deny him 1,237 delegates on the first ballot in the convention in Cleveland. But the Republican Party, and this is what I think is one of the biggest stories this year, is being transformed. 
the awkward marriage of a corporate-backed establishment and a blue-collar base is dissolving. Uh, we don't know what the new Republican Party is going to look like. Is it going to be a nativist, xenophobic, isolationist party or something else? Um, over time, the Republican primary electorate changed. It got more downwardly mobile, more non-college educated, whiter. And for decades, Republican candidates courted those voters successfully with social issues, whether it was crime, abortion, welfare, gay marriage, school prayer. They always had a message for those voters, but they didn't have an economic program for those voters. So along comes Donald Trump. He's not a conservative or a Republican. He's more in the traditional American populist tradition like Huey Long or Ross Perot or George Wallace, which has always combined nativism and economic grievance, grievance and resentment against those at the bottom, in this case immigrants, and those at the top, Wall Street. So Trump really is like a wrecking ball laying waste to the bedrock principles of the Republican Party, one after another. He's against free trade deals. He's against entitlement reform. So he's against small government. He's, uh, he wants to scale back from NATO. Um, he wants to deport 11 million people, build a wall, uh, prohibit Muslims from coming into the country, raise taxes on hedge fund managers. He was against the Iraq war. He thought George W. Bush lied about it. So he is not a typical Republican at all. You know, in 2013, after the 2012 elections, the Republicans commissioned a report that came to be called the Autopsy Report. After one party loses the election, they get to commission what I call the What Just Happened to Us study. And this report came out in March of 2013, and it said... You know, it had a lot of recommendations, but it had one, one and only one policy recommendation, which is that the party should embrace comprehensive immigration reform so they can reach out to the fastest-growing segment of the electorate, Hispanic voters, because Mitt Romney had just lost the Hispanic vote 71 to 27 percent. Three years later, Trump and the base of the party has gone in the completely opposite direction. The RNC theory was that Marco Rubio would be the new face of the Republican Party, young, charismatic, appealing, Hispanic. Their theory was you don't have to change the pizza, but you do have to change the box. The messenger has to be more appealing. Trump said, no, let's change the pizza. Um, so what happens now? If he, can, he loses in Wisconsin, that will be another speed bump for Trump. Maybe he won't get 1,237 delegates for the first ballot. We don't know if there'll be riots or not. Um, who's the alternative? The alternative really is Ted Cruz. Um, he is equally disliked in Washington by his peers, although on the campaign trail, I will tell you, he is friendly and funny, and he, um, he relates to voters and reporters, completely unlike his reputation for being arrogant and smarmy and overly ambitious in Washington. You know, the joke about Ted Cruz, why do people take an instant dislike to him? Because it saves time. Um, <coughs> and, and his... His colleagues, his college roommate said he would prefer as president anyone in the United States chosen randomly from the phone book over Ted Cruz. Um, so anyway, the, at this point, I think we have to operate on the assumption, it could be wrong, that it'll be Trump and Hillary Clinton. Those would be the two candidates with the highest negative ratings of any candidates running for president nominees ever. Trump has 60% on favorable ratings. Hillary has 55%. Um, 
Hillary, 40% of Democrats say she's not honest and trustworthy. This is what is causing Republicans to gnash their teeth, because they are convinced that Donald Trump will lose, or many Republicans are, that he'll also lose the Senate for them. But here's Hillary Clinton, a weak candidate, and after eight years, they know that that's the best chance you have for a, a party, the White House, to change hands. As in the modern era, only one candidate has ever managed to succeed a two-term president of his own party, and that was George H.W. Bush. So usually voters want to change after eight years. So we have the electoral map that we're looking at, that red and blue map that we look at every four years. Usually it favors Democrats, but Trump says, no, I can change the map because I bring so many new blue-collar voters into the mix. I can flip blue states red. I can win in Michigan, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, uh, Pennsylvania. The problem is that for every blue-collar voter he brings in for the first time or gets away from the Democrats, maybe he also motivates three suburban college-educated women and 15 newly registered Hispanic voters. Um, so it's, it's very unclear. For every bit of Democratic schadenfreude at the Republicans' disarray, there is an equal amount of anxiety because he is so unpredictable. And everything is up for grabs this fall. The White House, the Supreme Court, um, the Senate, even the House of Representatives, which we thought had this impregnable gerrymandered fortress around it. But Paul Ryan in the House, Mitch McConnell in the Senate are doing their best to try to somehow separate their candidates from Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell says we're going to drop them like a hot rock. That's hard to do. It's hard to separate yourself from the top of the ticket. Ask all those red state Democrats who tried to run away from Obama and are now no longer in the United States Senate. So the Democrats will do everything they can to make every single Republican Senate incumbent, especially those in blue states, they will make their middle name Donald J. Trump. And every day those candidates are going to be asked ad nauseum, do you agree with Trump on this, on this, on this? So I think it's a recipe for an ugly negative campaign uh, when you have two candidates, if you have those two candidates with those kind of high negatives. But I would only offer this one hopeful note in conclusion that since we have been wrong about everything else this entire campaign, maybe I'm also wrong about that and everything will work out okay. Um, now, Shanta Hyde, who's the Community Relations Director for Alaska Airlines, is going to come out to introduce our distinguished panel. Good evening, everyone. Can I just say, Maura is just amazing. Amazing, right? So uh, we at Alaska Airlines are so proud to sponsor this event tonight and to support an engaged discussion about the media and its transition. Tonight, I get the distinct pleasure of introducing to you our outstanding panelists for this evening. John Cook is the co-founder of GeekWire, a leading technology news site and community. He has covered the technology beat in the Seattle region for more than 15 years at publications such as the Seattle Post-Intelligencer and Eastside Journal. A native of Worcester, Ohio, John started his journalism career in high school, compiling obituary and election information for the Akron Beacon Journal, where his mom was a reporter. Pretty cool. He graduated from Gettysburg College with a degree in history 
earning Phi Beta Kappa recognition and, all, and academic All-American honors in soccer. Kathy Best is editor and vice president news at the Seattle Times. She joined the Times nine years ago as managing editor for digital innovation and previously worked as an assistant managing editor for Metro Sunday or National News at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Baltimore Sun, and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. Kathy spent most of her reporting career at the Post-Dispatch covering government and politics in the Illinois State House and Washington, D.C. bureaus. During her first two years as editor, the Times won a Pulitzer Prize for breaking news and two online journalism awards for breaking news and explanatory reporting. Karen Mathis, she's president and general manager of KUOW Puget Sound Public Radio. Karen started at KUOW in 2014, and prior to that, served as general manager of public radio station WAMU-FM in Washington, D.C., and as general manager of WDET-FM in Detroit for 21 years, and was news director for both. Karen has held various positions during her media career in Indiana, Cincinnati, and Detroit. She is a member, director on the NPR board, and serves on the University Station Alliance board. And finally, we have Dan Dixon. He is the Chief Community Engagement Officer for Providence Health and Services, the third largest healthcare provider in the nation. Prior to this, Mr. Dixon was Vice President of External Affairs for Swedish Medical Center, where he oversaw government affairs, community development, marketing, communications, and new business and health strategies. He is founder and president of the Board of Directors of Global to Local, G2L, which applies innovative, holistic, and community-driven solutions in developing nations to address healthcare and economic development disparities. In addition, he is a member of the Seattle Community Development Roundtable, serves on the Board of Trustees for the Seattle Alliance for Education, and is the director of the Downtown Seattle Association, and is personally a senior statesman in this town. I think you'll truly enjoy hearing from him. Maura, thank you for your passion and leadership in the media. We are so happy and humbled to have you here in Seattle. Will you please all join me in welcoming our panelists to the stage? So now we're going to have a lot of fun, as Donald Trump says. We're going to start with Dan Dixon because he was the inspiration for this event and also because he's not a journalist. Um, but he did give a speech at the Seattle Public Library about nine months ago. And Dan, if you could just tell us what you said that got Lori so inspired and made this happen. Well, thank you, and good evening. Do we live in a great town or what? Yeah. <laughs> it's 
pretty amazing when you come out and uh, of course you want to hear Maura who's just fantastic but given the first hint of spring it's pretty amazing that you come out to try to help us understand how we preserve and extend the media. So I'm not a journalist but I play one on TV. <laughs> you know when I, when I was giving some thought to this I'm, I'm going to give just a very few thoughts I have about the importance of media and especially the news media. And what I really believe and what I said more in that uh, presentation at Seattle Public Library is, and by the way, that was to uh, honor Frank Blethen and all his work that he and his family have done to maintain uh, the paper for these 100 plus years. So what I'd like to do is just focus on how important the news media has been to us as a nation. And go back to the day when the nation hanging by a thread with the failed Articles of Confederation, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay went to the newspapers and they made their case for this baby nation. And they did that by presenting successfully and brilliantly the Constitution of the United States. They basically saved an infant union. And it was the great New York Tribune editor, Horace Greeley, who caught a speech at Cooper Union and caught sight of this ungainly, incredibly tall man, the likes of which he had never seen before. And it wasn't too long after hearing that man speak that he started a campaign, right, Mara? And that campaign was to introduce the nation to Abraham Lincoln. And think about a time that was much like today. The first remarkable 25 years of the 20th century when industrialization completely transformed our nation but at the same time created this incredible ill environment with great disparities between the rich and the poor, horrible child labor conditions, horrible labor conditions, who came to the rescue? A new wave of media, the great progressive muckraking journalists who brought forward McClure's, Collier's, The American, the great, absolutely indispensable reporters like Ida Turbill, Lincoln Steffens, and George Perkins, among others, who took the strength of their words and investigations to change the way Congress thought, to change the way the courts made their laws, and establish the progressive movement that was a basis for much of what we are today. And then there is the artistry of reporting, don't you think? The Seattle Times winning the 2015 Pulitzer by reporting in a way that made the oh-so-tragedy so personal to all of us in our homes. The exquisite moments of holding one's breath when reading Maureen Dowd, seduced by the sheer brilliance of her prose as she artfully unsheathes her dagger to plunge it into the heart of another overvalued, 
or underwhelming victim. <laughs> so in the beginning and at the end of the day, I believe unflinchingly, and I'm here tonight, because for us, education matters. Truth matters. Transparency matters. And in all instances, integrity matters. And these are the very bedrock of the fourth estate. And they're the very bedrock that has made this nation great. And that is worth preserving in any medium or marketplace. That was great. That was like going to church. That was really nice. It really made me feel better. (laughs) Kathy, okay, you work for the big newspaper here, and we hear over and over again that newspapers are dead. Uh, But you also have the number one visited website in the Pacific Northwest. So tell us, give us a kind of health report on the state of newspapers. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you all for coming tonight. And Dan, thank you for speaking so eloquently on um, on the value that we have. I think a lot of people lose sight of that because of all the noise that, that Mara just told you about. Um, unfortunately, we've done a really, really good job of uh, writing about the fact that our industry has been disrupted. We have done such a good job that we have convinced people that we're dying. And the fact is, we're not. Um, <laughs> The Seattle Times newsroom is the second largest on the west coast of the United States. We have almost 200 journalists reporting every day. We are, uh, we are facing some challenges, but we are also embracing uh, learning how to do things the way John does it every day and learning lessons about how we can do it better. I have a newsroom now that has videographers and video editors and developers who uh, code and create interactive graphics so that we can provide journalism and tell stories in ways that we've never been able to do before. That is not dying. That is, that is evolving. And, and it's a pretty exciting place to be. Yeah, we have some business model things to figure out. So this will be the commercial portion of my message. If you don't subscribe, please do. Um, And tell your friends, also subscribe. Um, But our readership has never been larger than it is right now. We have, um, uh, I forgot to bring my notes, but we have almost 40 million page views a month. That doesn't count our print circulation. we have more people engaging with us, and we're going out and engaging in the community in ways that we've never done before. You know, there's one other thing about the Seattle Times. We are an endangered species, but not because journalism is dying or the Seattle Times version of journalism is dying. It's because we're one of the very last family-owned news organizations in the United States. That makes an enormous difference for Seattle, it means that if I want to go yell at my publisher, I get up, walk down a hallway, and I'm in his office. Um, It also means that he's invested in this community, and he and his family have, have sold off assets 
to pour money into the newsroom to get to allow us to become the second largest newsroom on the west coast of the United States. That's not an accident. It's because corporate owners and chain owners have cut the living hell out of their newsrooms and it shows um, in the coverage that's available. It shows in uh, in the way um, the political campaign is is unfolding. I mean, we're just not asking the same kinds of smart, deep questions and doing the digging that we did in campaigns past, and that hurts all of us. So I'm going to shut up now. We. <laughs> We made sure to invite a disruptor, John Cook. Um, so you're the you're the future, or the present. And what does GeekWire have to teach us? Wow, I'm the disruptor. That means I need to cause some controversy here tonight. I think what you'll find, though, uh, with GeekWire is we're very similar to many of my media colleagues here. We believe in the same things that uh, Kathy does at the Seattle Times. Uh, we believe in, in seeking the truth and serving our readers. Uh, and so as much as there is this discussion about the death of media or the tra this transformation that's occurring, in many ways our belief as kind of on the forefront of what's happening in, in digital media is that it's really uh, old school. It's telling great stories. It's doing old-fashioned beat reporting. It's being first to the scene. And that's what we try to do at GeekWire. So at the, at the end of the day, as much as our, our platform is digital and we use many of the tools of, of the the digital universe to tell our stories, and we love that because we think it allows us to actually do our jobs better. Um, when Kathy and I were at the Seattle PI together, I would get so frustrated because the management and the executive team was so locked in the print format. They could not escape their desire to serve people through a newspaper. And as a digital journalist and as a technology reporter, seeing the transformation occur in the 90s, it was just, it was incredibly uh, frustrating. Uh, and I think that's what happened to the newspaper business, frankly, is they got locked in their, their medium of how they were delivering the product, and they forgot about just how to deliver, deliver, uh, deliver journalism in the best way. And my belief is the best way to do that is, in, is through a digital form, whether that's um, an online site, a podcast, uh, through social media. And so I look at this in many ways, and echoing some of the comments that Dan made about uh, the golden era of, of media and journalism in the past, I, I am incredibly optimistic about the ability to tell stories in fresh, exciting ways, to have new brands, uh, new media voices emerge and tell stories. And to me, that makes this one of the most exciting times to be a journalist. Um, and so I think, just to go back to my original comments, I'm not that different as a disruptor than, than many of the panelists here. Um, we love finding great stories and doing great beat reporting at GeekWire and uh, look forward to the discussion here tonight. Well, as a lowly content provider, I rely on people like our panel to figure out the best way to get it to readers and listeners, and that's where Karen Mathis comes in, who went from my Washington to your Washington. <laughs> and um, how does public radio fit into all of this? Hey, public radio is feeling really, really good, thanks to people like you, so thank you. Um, 
I think the take I'm, I'm going to uh, take on, uh, on the request they made that we do like a couple of minutes of scene setting is that the state of media today is a place we've been before. This is, when we, we were here a long time ago and we're here again, you know, disrupted, new demands and expectations from a changing consumer base, new technologies that seem to be impacting our value set for journalism and entertainment and perhaps not always for the good. Things feeling a little bit out of control and moving too fast. Um, but I take it back to the Public Broadcasting Act is going to be 50 years old next year. It's going to coincide with the 65th anniversary of KUOW. And if you read President Lyndon Johnson's words upon signing the act in 1967, he talked, now he was talking about different mediums, but he talked about billions of messages chattering around the globe, satellites hurling messages thousands of miles in seconds. And he fretted about the proliferation of electronic media actually eroding the national conversation rather than enhancing it. And this great phrase, uh, a worry that electronic media in weak or irresponsible hands, these media miracles could generate controversy without understanding, mislead instead of teach, and appeal to inflamed passions rather than to reason. What does that sound like? (laughs) So the enlightened leadership in the country at that time felt that managing media miracles toward the betterment of society had to involve marshalling some bandwidth, some portion of bandwidth on every conceivable platform for education, enlightenment, knowledge building, cultural understanding, the arts, those pillars of the humanities that that draw us up from our baser human nature. And so for challenges in my industry, so I'm talking specifically about the public broadcasting industry, Our challenges are relevance, making sure that we can be found and heard over the din of everything that's that's out there now. Resonance, are we making content that tells the story of us? And we have to mean all of us, because the face of the Puget Sound is changing even faster, I think, than the general face of America, maybe. Civil discourse and nuanced thought being interesting, intelligently, humanely, and not succumbing to voyeuristic, lowest common denominator presentations. You know, there's the the stuff that stops you in your tracks where you say, wow, that was deep. And then there's the other stuff that, whoa, look at that that car wreck, you know, and so we want to be on the, on the thoughtful side of, of stuff. Our challenge is to be vital in, uh, to our constituencies and meeting them everywhere they are. There's this talk about, oh, younger people don't own radios, they don't listen to radio, radio is dead to the millennials and younger. Well, they don't use the appliance of a radio, but if I had my iPhone here, I could hold it up and say, behold, the new transistor radio, you know? (laughs) And so um, uh, probably 80 or 90 percent, we just got a survey from Edison Research, 80 or 90 percent of people from 12 to 34 are consuming 
some kind of audio content delivered on some device um, every every week. And so, you know, radio, I don't know that in my strategic plan we even use the word radio anymore. We're an audio, audio content provider. Another challenge is that we need to really treat community engagement as another channel and another platform. We need to get out there, mix it up face-to-face, involve the audience, this ever-burgeoning, changing, diverse audience, involve that audience in our story-making as well as our story-telling. And I think it's important in public radio, I know that KUOW, when we go into a community, we try to always leave behind some artifact. We do training programs to teach young people in diverse communities, and now we want to move into uh, older people in diverse communities. Teach them to use media to tell their own stories. And we're not just being magnanimous. We're leaving behind that artifact so that then we have a new stringer reporter (laughs) in that community, so, so it'll feed back to us. And I think one of the greatest changes that has to happen in my industry is that we, um, we're going back to narrow casting at the same time that we're doing broadcasting. So the, the topic vertical that is podcasting, you know, you're doing a lot more little teeny mini shows. And so that's, that's going to change workflows in the newsroom and what kind of lift it is to make content. So that's very different. So topic verticalism. Um, that's a mindset change and a workflow change. And so finally, the last thing I'm going to say to you is that, at least in public radio, we got to shut up about digital being something over there that we got to do. Digital is just distribution. It's the storytelling, stupid. That was pretty great. I want to ask our panel, just because I did throw out these questions before, can we talk about kind of covering the kind of challenges that Donald Trump has proposed? Challenges about being even-handed, um, how to deal with someone who is a stream-of-consciousness candidate, you know, the fact-checking challenges, and also the whole idea of civil norms and, and the unwritten rules that keep us from being barbarians. I mean, I know there's a law against yelling fire in a crowded theater, but there's actually no law against standing up at a rally and saying, I want to punch somebody in the face. So, you know, at the Times, how do you handle this? And how do you cover him in a way that isn't just the car wreck approach where you just put him up there and, and, and it's clickbait and that's it. So there are times when uh, pub- working at a news organization in the People's Republic of Seattle is, uh, <laughs> is really good and this election season is one of those times because uh, coverage of Donald Trump has been at a far remove. He, he hasn't come here. Thank God. Uh, so, uh, but I mean, not not because I have political opinions, but just because covering him appears to be a nightmare. Um, so for us, the the question is, how do we take the various wire services that we get, and we get the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Associated Press and uh, L.A. and 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 how do our editors? 
uh, pull the best things together so that we can provide our readers a daily news report that isn't uh, that isn't cable TV, that isn't you know social media, the screaming uh, soundbite of the moment, that actually steps back, puts what they're hearing everywhere else into a broader context, and uses all of the resources that we have to fact check it and tell people, you know, it's not enough just to tell people what Donald Trump said or any other candidate. It's to say, and was it true? And what is the history here? And what is the broader piece? So that's, that's how we're trying to cope with it. You know, for some period of time, the Huffington Post put him in the entertainment section. They did. They stopped doing that. Yeah. Um, so, Dan, I don't know if, if you have had any thoughts as you've watched this incredibly phenomenal election in terms of the kinds of values that you've talked so eloquently about preserving. Well, I think that the time we're in, a um, couple things. The time we're in, while wildly um, beyond perhaps exactly what happened, but we have gone through some of this before. Um, we've gone through radical populism. We've gone through hateful times. There's a long list of bullies who've tried to bowl themselves into our political landscape and into our homes. And I, I think what I'd say, Mar, is that I think we have an opportunity to revisit those values that I talked about that I don't think have gone anywhere. I just think that they've been stampeded by a madman who probably woke up one morning and said, for the love of God, I can't believe this is happening. Except what's really scary is that he's planned this for a really long time. So I think the press responsibility is to maintain and elevate those values that I address, the importance of integrity, the importance of transparency, the importance of truth, the things that John has taken to, the, to his digital platform. So I, I would hope that we have an opportunity for a resurrection of the great muckrakers who aren't afraid to take down the bullies. I would highlight the elevation of Politico. Three years ago, I read them, and eh, they're okay. I think that they are Republican. What's the deal? They've actually elevated themselves to um, a real paper that looks at issues, dissects them um, based on those uh, values that I just noted. So I'm hopeful uh, that what will happen is that Kathy will be here another 10 years um, spreading the truth and that we'll have new um, publications that we haven't dreamed of that will be new platforms for those very important things that have brought us here tonight. John, the, uh, the Internet and technology, uh, Donald Trump couldn't exist without them. And he's the most modern candidate in terms of using social media. Um, and there is no... Uh, kind of overarching fact checker for the internet. Um, how, does, how do journalists keep up? That's true, but I would argue that I think while Donald Trump may have built his uh, brand online and through Twitter, I, I, I feel that the citizen journalist, the person who's going to dig 
the ability to, to, for everyone to tell stories and look now, I like to say, you know, everybody's a journalist. And so I think there's actually an opportunity for the truth to actually get out there much, much faster. Uh, this is the thing I love about the Internet, and we saw this early in the days of when we started blogging. You know, I hate that term now, but that's what it was called. And the great thing about blogs was that they allowed comments. And you could say, oh, that turns into a flame war, and one person saying one thing or one person saying the other. But frankly, as a reporter, I use that as a tool to direct me on the story. And I think it's a very valuable thing to be able to listen to your community in that way. So just as people can <coughs> listen to comments, I think you can um, dig through social media and get to the truth of what is actually <coughs> happening. So while it is used as a propaganda tool, it's also used as a, as a truth-seeking missile. And I think that it will eventually catch up to, uh, to Trump. I think there will be people, it may be a traditional journalist who's digging into uh, his life and exposing things, but I think there's just as much opportunity for someone we've never even heard of that discovers something or uncovers something. Um, with Trump, it's just such a strange phenomena, frankly, that, um, and what worries me about it from a media standpoint is that it is propaganda. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's really manipulation of, of people and, and thoughts. And I think then you have to kind of start to think about uh, people like my dad, who lives in Ohio, who's bombarded with this stuff all the day, who used to be a moderate Republican, who now, um, you know, is, I mean, Fox News is his, is his outlet. And that's all he listens to. I mean, it's all, that's the only place he gets his information from. And to me, that's, that, that just scares the hell out of me. I would much rather have him be, you know, I, I guess as a media person, I'm, I'm inundated with, with media coming at me from Twitter, from other social media channels, from tr traditional media. And I like that. I like sucking it all in and, and making a decision. And I think younger people operate that way, and I think they're able to digest a lot and take it in and, and come to some sort of conclusion. Uh, there's another part of the populace that has been just totally manipulated, uh, largely, I would say, by the TV media uh, over the last 10, 15 years, and that just really scares me because I see it in my own family. Uh, someone who used to be a part of the Republican Party that was pretty moderate, uh, who has shifted onto a, a place that I don't even really comprehend anymore. Karen, I want to ask you about this, this question that John is raising, which really is about diversity of views, you know, that, that people should be exposed to all sorts of different things. And I want to just reverse it a little bit, because one of the reasons that so many people were caught flat-footed by Trump, didn't understand him, or were so shocked that he went as far as he did, really a failure of imagination, was because... Uh, they live on the Acela Corridor and they don't spend any time with white working class people who are, you know, who, who live in these communities where jobs have disappeared and there's problems of drug use and divorce and every social pathology you could imagine. Um, you know, you live in a community that is an amazing, beautiful community, but it is not super diverse. I don't mean diverse ethnically. I mean it's not super diverse ideologically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, how I do you would, deal with that? I would say that that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, I'm I'm torn because we've seen this prolifer proliferation of the internet and other forms of self-curating your own media, 
And you, you, can, you can go for weeks and weeks and weeks and never bump into an idea with which you don't already agree. And so I think that's very, that's very frightening. What, what happened to a liberal arts education, you know, and the, and the broader look? Um, Mara was at the station at KUOW earlier this afternoon, and you were talking about, you know, the legions. You can't hire enough legions of fact checkers um, to, to follow someone like Trump around. And I, I'm not even sure it would do you any good if you did, because there's, there's this pervasive anger where it seems that people don't care what the truth is. So, yes, we still have to be the truth-squatting entities, but when you have a population that's just so angry that they're just, la, 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 I don't care, I don't care, this is how I feel. And, you know, we saw, years ago, we saw the, the Tea Party first bubble up, and we thought that that was a moment in time. But there's this pervasive anger there of people who feel like the America that they knew and aspired to is slipping away from them. And they look around for somebody to blame, and it's very easy to blame someone whom you don't know at all, and you can paint them with the big, broad brush. And so when I talk about you know, telling the story of us, all of us, I think that's important. I think one way to break through that is to get out into the community. If, you, if you're not going to tootle around and find your own diverse media, then we've got to go out you know, to that bar or bowling alley or, you know, wherever, a town hall, wherever you are, and put diverse conversations in front of you to at least make you pause and think. I think that's the the defining difference, at least in public media and most journalism, that we, we try to make you at least pause and think about someone else's perspective. And, and that is the most magical thing when you can have a, just a little bit of a mind shift. You know, just that little, like, oh, I hadn't really thought about it that way. Let me, let me look at this through that person's lens, and then it's, it's much more difficult to broadly paint people as, you know, them and they, and they're like this. So I think we do have to get out into the community more and convene discussions and force people to press the flesh and get to know one another. Do we want to, is it time to open it up? Okay, we're going to open it up for questions, and there are mics, which I can't really see, but they are out there. Um, so, okay, ma'am? Is the mic working? Go ahead. I thought I'd be at the end of the line and have time to get my question better ready. So I've been thinking about the presentation of Trump in the media uh, because it is so painful to see it over and over and over again and and wishing that we could all just take a step back and say, you know, we know what he's saying. We don't have to get shocked or upset. And picturing our media doing that, what would it be like if we were all kind of quietly saying, okay, he said this today, what does our panel of... Uh, moral people say about what he said, okay, we're done. Um, But then I thought, well, Fox News wouldn't do that. (laughs) They'd still be out there painting it, and everybody would still want to listen to them because you have this group of people who are so upset that really need to be heard. And so I was just listening to what you were saying and thinking it really is necessary that we stop listening to what Trump is saying and start listening to what the people who believe in Trump are saying. 
that's where it is, that they need to be heard. And if we listen to them and if we put their words out there, and they're real people and they really care about their lives and their families, if we do that, then maybe they'll listen to us instead of listening to Trump for a while because I'm sure they want to hear their words spoken too. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that after this election, whatever happens to the Republican Party, whatever happens to Donald Trump, the voters, and this is true for people on the Democratic side too, the really disaffected voters that have driven this year's election, they, they have to be listened to, and I think that they will be. I think this populism is not going to go away. It's on the left and the right. Uh, it's about the incredible economic stagnation that we've had, and whoever is the next president and whoever is in Congress after next January is going to have to deal with, with exactly what you're talking about. I don't, think the, I don't think the media is missing that story, though. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that story reported. Uh, maybe what the media missed was the run-up to, to the Donald, mm-hmm. Donald Trump phenomena, but now that it's occurred, believe me, those stories are being told throughout media uh, in terms of who these people are. But I would argue that... Because uh, traditional mainstream media has shrunk in the last 12 years, when I was still a political reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they sent eight reporters out around the United States just for a project called The Voice of the Voter, just to take the temperature of the electorate as a lead-up to a presidential campaign. That, that doesn't happen anymore. First of all, the Post-Dispatch doesn't even have a Washington bureau anymore. Um, there's no way that I could afford to do that. And, and I, we have a big newspaper. So um, there is, these things are tied together, and that's what makes it kind of frightening. That, that leads perfectly into my question. I'm over here. Other side. There you go. Off to the left. Oh, okay. Sorry, it's the lights are... Yeah, um, right. The Academy Award-winning movie Spotlight yeah. really focused on the importance uh, to our society of months and months of investigating reporting. And with the death of so many newspapers, I've, I, I've been alarmed that we don't see the same kind of commitment to investigative reporting. Can the panel speak to what you think the future of that kind of investigating reporting would be? I think it's bleak, but if you, miss, if, if you look at the story of Spotlight, what they missed was they had a beat reporter on it who missed the story originally. And so I am not a big fan, I never have been a big fan, of sitting in a room for six or eight or 12 months and doing a story. What I'm a fan of is having a beat reporter on the story and being aggressive and going after it. And we have lost some of that, but... I, you know, I, I don't think this era of going back to what happened in the, in the movie Spotlight is coming back. It's, the, the funding model for that is very, very challenging. But if we can empower journalists to go out and cover their beats day in, day out, you're going to get those things illuminated. This is what I was talking about earlier. You can tell a story by listening to readers. And, like, you write one story, and it builds on it. You listen to readers, you follow another path, and it, and it builds on it and builds on it and builds on it. And I think that's what great beat reporters do. And I think that's alive and well. And I think there's even more opportunity now for many, many people to do it, and it's just not coming from traditional channels. There's more media being produced now than ever. There, there's, there's the ability to get stories told on almost anything you're interested in. I mean, we're, we don't lack for good storytelling out there. It's there. If you want to find it, you can go get it. The problem and the challenge is, is that we have, fra- the media has fractured in such a uh, tremendous way 
that now we have these niche publications, GeekWire being one of them. Uh, and, and that does create problems, as Karen was saying, in terms of this verticalization of content, and then people dig, get locked in this world and never get out of it. That I don't have a, have a uh, solution for. And so, I, would, I would add that you're absolutely right about what happens um, when you segment. We're really talking about segmenting the market, which means you folks. So every time that uh, it's kind of like programming Pandora, right? But the problem is when you talk about um, liberal arts colleges, there's a reason why you have colleges like that because you're exposed to different ideas. You're, you're exposed to different ways of thinking. One of the biggest concerns we have with our new media is this segmentation. If you think about it, it's the perfect, I, it's the perfect existential trap to your father's case. You know, he listens to Fox all the time. Um, you know, fo other folks are going to listen to MSNBC. Until we have a medium, any medium, I'll get, take any medium to do this, that can tell the real stories that are, in fact, drawing people to a man like uh, Mr. Trump. And those stories are things like only 15% of the capital on Wall Street gets to Main Street. All the rest are played in games in the digital economy by bankers. So you know when these people are angry, they're not going to have a shot. I mean, they're lucky to have a shot at Main Street, let alone Wall Street. The, despairs, the disparity we have right now is not just haunting, it's dangerous. So I think when we take up these great stories and we just, we're, we're a dog with a bone. We keep pounding away, and, we, and to my earlier point, you pound away with integrity, but you keep pounding away. Mr. Trump, weren't you part of this area that is not really dispersing the economy to help all of us? We're not going to fix the systemic stuff right away. Those people who are angry are going to remain angry for a long, long time. But what we can do is to begin to level the playing field by starting as... I said, with truth and transparency, because that opens up the light. I just want to give a, a, an extra shout out to for beat reporting, and every beat reporter ought to be joined at the hip with a data mining expert. That whole <laughs> thing of if you see something, say something, and you know, with a, a spare bag on the metro. Uh, my old station, WAMU, we only have one investigative reporter. <coughs> but he's also a political beat reporter. He's out there every day, every day, every day, paired him with a data mining expert, and one of the big stories they broke was that, wow, they're going through, you know, the campaign records, and, you know, somebody's paying, making con campaign contributions in money orders. And, you know, $25, $25, $25, and here's like 5,000 of them, of these money orders. And it's like, hmm doesn't quite look right. And so it turned out to be a very big story. So I think data mining of really taking that, that um, studious um, time to, to go through and, and just see what the little aberration is, because there's usually a, there's sometimes a story behind that. So like Karen and John, I am a huge fan of beat reporters and have great respect for them. And I've also been at places where investigative reporting was 
you know, seven white guys sitting in a room dreaming up their next project. That doesn't work. The best stories come out of beats. That said, however, investigative reporting is a specialty just like covering technology is a specialty. You have, there are techniques, there is a way of approaching it, that there's knowing how to amass uh, uh, and, and sort through um, government records and financial records and lots and lots of other records than, than also being able to go and convince people who don't want to talk to not only talk to you but but to spill their guts and, and give you incredible stuff. I mean, that, that cannot be minimized. And, and one of the things that, as long as I'm the editor of the Seattle Times, we will do is protect our ability to do that kind of reporting. That's what changes laws. That's what saves lives. That's what exposes corruption and holds the powerful to account. And that's why we're here. Um, so, the other thing I want to say, and, and it's with all due respect to John, who I think is a terrific journalist, um, I, your vision of the internet, I would love to be able to buy into your vision of the internet, but there's so much noise out there, there is so much crap out there that I don't think that everybody's a journalist. And I don't think that, you know, some person using the Internet in Bozeman, Montana, is going to surface the story that's going to bring down an organization by themselves. I mean, there's a reason that journalism exists. And, and, and I think that it has value, and I don't think that we should minimize it. I mean, I love the fact that everybody can play, but... Well, yeah, it, it might not be somebody who's sitting in a room and, and, and doing a traditional news report. It might just be somebody who digs up a document and puts it out there. Right. And where are you going to put it out there? You're probably going to put it out there on Twitter or Facebook. But and then, and find then, it? Well, if it's inflammatory enough or interesting enough to uh, the beat reporters who are covering Donald Trump and they find mm -hmm. some document, believe me, there are going to be 100 beat reporters on that telling the story and chasing the trail. All I'm saying is that information gets pushed out so quickly in so many different directions right mm -hmm. now, and it's a, that's an empowering thing. This is the empowering thing of the Internet, mm -hmm. is that anyone can find anything, and oftentimes it's not just journalists digging for it. Right. It's people that are just interested in a topic, yeah. and you've got to listen to those people and, and, and use them as a tool as a journalist to direct you where to go. Uh, and and I, think that's a, I think that's a great thing. I think we have more information more truth because of that. I, I think you're right. I also think that we need to make sure that our colleges and universities and high schools are teaching people how to tell the difference between fact and fiction, how to tell the difference between analysis, analysis and opinion, because if you're going to live agree. in your world, yeah. you have to be able to know what's real and what's well, that, not and, and be able to... Well, that's a huge societal educational problem that is. we're talking about. We're not talking about journalism or media. Right. We're talking about the, uh, the, the uh, society and, and the populace becoming dumb. I mean, really, that's what we're talking about. And, and that's something you can't solve. Uh, other than we're going to invest in ed education and, and tell people how to critically think right. about issues. Yep. Yep. So, yep. Yeah.
Let's take another question. I don't think there's a person in this room who isn't a big supporter of uh, journalism in all of its forms. However, I do want to mention that the last number I heard was at least $5 billion in political advertising will be spent this year. And I understand there's a separation, in, and none of you on this panel are the beneficiaries of that political advertising largesse. But I think we have to recognize that there's a reason why the media does what it does, not anybody on this panel. $5 billion is the base of what will be spent on political advertising, and that informs a lot of what we hear. I'd like to hear you, what you think about how you insulate yourself from the power of all that money. Well, I, I think that's a um, brilliant observation. I was waiting for that to come. <laughs> there are a couple problems. Uh, well, there are many problems out there with, with respect to how media finds their way um, through these shoals. Um, it didn't help that we had um, a horrible Supreme Court decision. Um, it, it didn't help that we had this coalescence of corporate ownership of media. Um, didn't help that they're driven by a bottom line like all companies are. Uh, it is... Um, it is one of our biggest problems. Um, I can tell you that when you have more, I'm interested in what you think about this. You know, when you have the president of CBS gleeful, and essentially, I think it was praise the Lord for Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that's a real that's a real issue. And on the one hand, you know, as one who's obviously here as a supporter of the the news. Um, I'm really glad that uh, they're going to be able to, to be strong. And on the other hand, it's just wrong. Mara, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's one of the things that disturbs me the most. I mean, look, I work in public media. We don't take advertising from anybody, let alone political candidates. But, yeah, I mean, the fact that um, the president of CBS News was saying, yes, we want to put him on all the time. We want to put him on unfiltered because it's so great for ratings. And he's been, you know, and the TV networks and especially the cable networks are hurting. And CNN, which has been struggling really to find its footing, you know, found a great way. Just have one of those, well, first of all, have one of those town meetings every single day. Now that I think is fine because they actually make the vote, the candidates show up um, on set for those. But you know, that's why they all, as we talked about earlier, that's why they threw out the rule that you have to come on set, because they just want to get Trump in any way, shape, or form, because they know that he's, well, the television version of clickbait, you know, that he's just going to get uh, listeners. And, he, and the, the, the number of people who tuned in to watch the Republican debates, now that's a legitimate civic exercise, whatever you might think of the food fights that occurred during them, that was a standard, you know, thing. But the advertising rates for them were, were through the roof. You know, that's, I mean, if you're going to have commercial media, you're going to have that kind of business model. However, I don't think we could pass any of these laws in the United States, but there are rules in other countries about this, about coverage, about political advertising. I mean, I think in England, you can only advertise in the last three weeks before the election, right? right? Or three months. Or th it's a pretty short period yeah. of time. Um, but I do think the editorial quest decisions that 
editors are going to have to make, especially for the general election when there are only two candidates, um, <clears throat> you know, are they going to cover Trump disproportionately to Hillary Clinton? Or are they going to enforce some kind of equal minutes of airtime? I mean, these are, these are pretty important questions. Hey, Mara. Scott Talon, a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., where you live, okay, but here in Seattle see. and enjoying where, where sunshine. It doesn't matter. Oh, over here. <laughs> okay, sorry, I just can't see a thing. I'm in yeah, the okay. center, I guess. Um, um, my real content's content marketing, but Mara, I want to point out that you created the frame of Trump tonight, which we didn't have to talk about. It wasn't in any description I read in buying a ticket. You are as guilty as talking about him as anyone. It's so easy and sexy. I don't apologize for talking about him. He's an extremely important thing that's happening in our but Mara, country. It, but Mara, the, yeah. then on the other hand, you talk about like, well, let's worry about what editorial writers do. You're in a public broadcasting situation. You should be of all places, I think, a little bit more resistant. It's easy to talk about Trump, and I will stop doing it now. <laughs> My real question is what I've noticed, because I now teach, I used to be a reporter, but now I teach strategic communication. What I've noticed with journalistic products online, whether it's from Main Street News or niche sites, is this thing, content marketing. Branded content, where third-party providers, who often aren't named, are paying newspapers and websites to put content on them. We can't always see if it comes from the New York Times, the Seattle Times, or some other publication. So I think that trend has got big implications and curious of thoughts from the panelists. Well, that, well the, the sponsored content thing is a real issue. However, I mean, usually it should be clearly labeled. Um, and I there think are most... no rules and regulations, and it's up to every journalistic organization to choose how they label it. Okay. It, so the, the, the truth is somewhere between um, what you guys are saying. So, um, yes, it is up to the organization to determine its own labeling, but thank God the FTC weighed in with guidelines uh, in December, and uh, their guidelines are very much about transparency is the expectation, and I am waiting um, and hoping that they follow up by actually taking action against uh, an organization that is not clearly labeling its content so that you can tell what the hell you're reading. Yeah. But in terms, of, in terms of talking a lot about Trump, which I certainly did, and I plead guilty to that, however, in talking about the kinds of things that I think are significant in this year's election, he is so overwhelming that he took up a lot of my so-called airtime. However... At NPR, I think, if you look through our coverage, he does not get a disproportionate amount of coverage on our news programs. I mean, that's what we're talking about tonight. I mean, as, as somebody who's trying to explain what's happening in this year's bizarre, unprecedented election, yeah, he, he gets a lot of time. He even sucks the oxygen out of the room. Now, that's very different than an editor's decision about how to cover two candidates when we get them uh, in the fall. So one of the influences of digital media is on our attention spans. And as we talk about covering the truth, feel free to disagree with me on this, but I do think that often the truth carries nuances, and those nuances take time, more than a page, more than five minutes to tell. And so I'm curious to hear any tips, experiences, uh, prognoses you have for long-form reporting. I'll, I'll start. Um, 
I mean, one of the things that I love about millennials is that um, they're voracious readers and they pick uh, stories from a variety of different sources. That's the first tip. I mean, um, just as John was talking about his dad watching Fox News, um, you need to have a variety of news sources and you need to have a variety of storytelling forms as well. So, you know, look for that long analysis piece in the Sunday paper, uh, not just the Sunday Seattle Times, although that would be a great place, but the, the Sunday New York Times, um, The Guardian. Um, also, look for um, some, of the, uh, some of the best work that um, public radio is producing. Read PolitiFact. Um, read Politico. Um, if do you guys do political coverage? Or? Limited. Okay. We don't, so we don't should... venture into that brass <laughs> as much as we uh, okay would need to. Yeah, but I mean, it's you know, you need to be your own best editor, and we'll do our best to help curate the best stuff that's available to us. But we can't touch the whole broad world of uh, of information out there. I mean, it's ironic, you know, as a digital publication, some of our long-form content is some of our most well-read, and some, of, and, and I think there's just an appetite for it. And um, I, I, we're going to continue to tell those stories. But I agree with Kathy that you just got to have a mix of how you tell stories. And this is the fun thing and the interesting thing about journalism today is that you have all these tools to tell these stories in so many different ways. One of my frustrations when I was a PI reporter and the journalists around the table here will remember, you know, the news hole. What's the news hole this week? That was how much space you had to get your content into in the physical newspaper. It was the most frustrating thing in the world as a beat reporter. I had 10 stories to tell some days. I had like 15 more inches than what could go into the newspaper. It was incredibly frustrating. So as a reporter, the ability to have a canvas that you can paint on that is endless is, is, is so empowering and so wonderful. And that's what I love about the Internet. Yeah, I think multi-platform is the way to go because you can't... People have so many choices. You you can't just say I'm going to do it this way and no other way because you know you won't. So if people will dip in for seven minutes or twelve minutes on broadcast, but then you have a large build up build out of the story on the web. So I think we see um, at least in in public radio, you see stories playing out their life in different forms on different platforms. There can be a social media advancement of a, of a story and then the big website build out and the broadcast piece or the, the uh, uh, prime time shorter piece in the daily news magazine that leads you to a longer hour long expose that evening uh, but still you, sh- you should augment as, as Kathy said you still need to augment your intake of, of information through a wide variety of sources although I know that's tough because we're all busy but. damn and I'd like, I think we're starting to wind down here, so I'd like to um, leave on a very positive note. I want to give a shout-out to millennials. Because when I think of our kids, um, they're incredible. Um, they believe, they teach me about social justice. They tell me how they're going to contribute. And I believe that it's those kids who are going to create these new vehicles that we've been talking about tonight that will be 
inherently imbued with those ethics that we've talked about that are part of our, our great public information sector. You know, and I was at a, um, finally at a uh, neighbor's house where they had these um, couple of uh, kids. How can you be kids at 25? <laughs> but they were, uh, they were really, really burning for uh, Bernie. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a lifelong progressive, but Lord have mercy, I just want to win. <laughs> but I was guilty. I was guilty because I was arguing with him. Well, you know, Bernie can't be elected. And they looked me in the eye and they said, that may be true, Dan, but he has the values that are important to us, and we think that they should be broadcast as far as possible in our communities. And then I went home and kicked myself because I was thinking, geez, you know, I sounded like, I don't know, my dad. <laughs> <coughs> because, because when I, you know, at 16, I fell in love with Robert Kennedy. I knocked on doors for him. There's no way he was going to win by all rights of the establishment. But he's the one that gave me hope. He's the one that gave me the spirit. And he's one of the reasons why I'm glad we're here tonight. So millennials, take us out of the woods. <laughs> Pretty great. One last question over here, Mark. It's our Pardon? turn, Mara. Yeah. Good evening. I I come from an age when I grew up and Walter Cronkite led the evening news, and I always thought of him as Father Cronkite after he left. Uncle Walter, right. Uncle Walter. Uh, in my lifetime starting law school, we hit the zenith of investigative reporting with Watergate. By the invasion in Grenada under the Reagan administration, we had moved to a nadir where we had press pools we lost the FCC rule of sevens, and I'm looking at this corporate ownership issue and wondering if it's still relevant. There was a time even when the airwaves were sold with very little coverage on the airwaves, and uh, this consolidation of the owner pool, which went from triple or four digits, is down maybe to single digits now, which was one of the issues that Bill Moyers, I think, covered when he said, we're on PBS, and we didn't even cover this issue with all the interlocking things. Is it no longer relevant that there's no antitrust movement, such as the Newspaper Preservation Act, which kept people from buying the failing PI in Seattle? Is, is it no longer relevant that we've allowed this contraction of media ownership or is this an issue that needs to be revisited and, vi you know, like an, and, and vitalized again in terms of ensuring an educated populace? Because without an educated populace, you can't have a functional democracy. Yeah. You, you talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that you can regulate your way out of this. Um, I think that 
I think that we have seen the results of what concentrated ownership looks like, and in it's very scary. Um, we're seeing the same thing play out in Canada and in other countries, and and I, I completely agree with you that it's bad for democracy. Um, that said, and um, I disagreed with John a little bit earlier about you know the value of the internet, but but that's one of the areas where it really can help make up for the the concentration of ownership because there are other ways that there are diverse voices out there. Um, they may not be showing up in mainstream media, but they're going to be showing up. I mean, in if you ask my my boss, Frank Blethen, this question, um, he's really passionate on the topic, and he does want Congress to, to regulate. I think that's going to be very difficult and a really big fight because there's so much at stake, and also because we've gone so far down the road, I don't know how you come back. I'd like to get us to have a little of the populist questions, if we could. One of my populist questions is, what does this to have to do with history? Walter Lippmann in the 20s and 30s and many others called to, called to everybody's mind that we had a mass society, we were having mass media, we were having mass propaganda, and that was when it was starting to happen. Even before that, there had been yellow journalism. Um, Goebbels, minister for Hitler, laid down the rules and... Um, some of our recent um, people like Donald Rumfeld, Rumsfeld have followed those rules. Tell the lie many times, spew out the spaghetti, and that's what Mr. T is doing. And there's a reason why people listen, because populism is based on a dissatisfaction with some of the fundamental principles of capitalism, which is not a democratic um, economic viewpoint, people still know that there's, whatever, 2% that use most of the things. And um, I'm not here to do a rant. I just want to give a perspective. Well, we really appreciate your perspective. And we're going to ask you to bring it to a conclusion because it's really yeah, helpful. Yeah, I, I have to one have question. But I yeah. would like to see. Because we're, we're out of time and yeah, I want to close I would like yeah. to see just an example of one of you all talking to us, not about the principle of truth, but how... Um, that reporter is going to break Donald's train of blab, and that can be done just like a tantrum-giving child. Um, that's what we need the reporters to do, to stop the rant. You know, I just want to thank everyone who came and all of our panelists, and because Kathy ended by invoking Frank Blethen, and that's where Dan started. Um, you know, the, and I just want to come back to Dan's what he hoped were the closing remarks, but I kept on going, about millennials and about people who have a commitment to the kinds of journalism that we're all talking about. It's not um, all bleak and hopeless. There are plenty of people, especially millennials, even if they don't even know it exactly, um, who do care about uh, preserving a search for truth and information and diversity of opinion. And I think, you know, that's what we're all about. Thank you very much for coming. This was a great evening. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle.
NPR political correspondent Mara Liason spoke at Town Hall Seattle on March 31st. Thanks again to Anna Sophia Knauf for our recording. Tune in again soon. 